Welcome to Lobster Brain. Lobsters fight, and when they win, it changes the neurochemicals in their brain, and in turn the hierarchy of the lobster community. Each success makes the lobster more of a leader, and it becomes a top lobster. But why are we telling you this? Because in this podcast, you'll learn about how success can influence your mindset, strengthen your beliefs, and change your thought processes. But you'll also discover that it's both success and hard knocks that create leaders, or as we'll be calling them, top lobsters. I'm Lisa Morton. And I'm Danny Donachie. And in this episode of Lobster Brain, you're going to hear from one of Great Britain's most successful athletes, Dame Jessica Ennis-Hill, OBE. Jess is definitely a top lobster because she overcame bullying when she was a schoolgirl about her size and then all the self-doubt that came with that. And then went on to become an Olympic gold medalist in an event which was dominated by Amazonian women. And for me, the challenges that she's overcome and that changing mindset that she's had is just absolutely incredible. Yeah, I was so excited, Lisa, to get her on. She's such an inspiration. And she speaks about the moments where she won the Olympic gold and she lights up in those moments. And yet at the same time, she had this lingering self-doubt that was her biggest challenge as as an athlete. And it's a really interesting thing that she holds both of those at the same time. Completely agree, Danny. And I'd been looking forward to this conversation so much because, as you know, I had to let Jess know about my own athletic ambitions. Jess, thanks so much for joining us on Lobster Brain. We've been dying to talk to you. And um, Danny, I've worked with Danny for about nine years now, and he didn't know that I was a sprinter (laughs) from being about 14 (laughs) and a hurdler. Um, and he, he didn't believe me. So obviously, yeah, I've, I've followed a lot of the stuff that you've done. I wasn't as fast as you, I have to say. So, <laughs> But I loved the world of athletics. It was great. And I read your book, Unbelievable, in about two sittings, and it gave me goosebumps. And there's something in there that really struck me, which is when you described in 2012, you standing at the mouth to the tunnel that led to the arena. And in that moment, it took you straight back to how you felt when you were a young girl at school, standing outside the gates, worrying about going in to face the bullies who bullied you because of your size. So I just wondered if you could talk us through how you felt in that moment. Yeah, I mean, that moment, well, you know, it'll stick with me forever. Stepping into that stadium, it was, you know, I often forget myself and I think so many people do forget that that was actually my first Olympics, you know, my first real experience of uh, games and what, you know, everything that comes with the games, but everything that comes with the home Olympics. So I, I felt very, very overwhelmed in those moments. It was kind of like you have that one opportunity to perform and deliver. And if you don't, and if you make a mistake or you fall over a hurdle or something goes wrong, then it's over. And there's four more years to another Olympic cycle. But the fact that it was a home Olympics, so that was never going to happen to me again in my lifetime. So yeah, I was very aware of the pressure and the expectation stepping out into the stadium that morning. But then at the same time, I felt so, so ready to perform. Like I trained so hard. I had my warm weather training camp with the team in Portugal. And, you know, I felt in the shape of my life. So I was kind of had those two kind of emotions and feelings of gosh this is such an opportunity take it as much as you can but also that kind of I'm, I'm ready to go I'm ready to perform and you said though that 
also there was there's always that niggle you know you proved how mighty you were as an athlete but when you were at school because you were quite small some of the girls at school were pretty mean and even through your career there's a couple of times of who was it it's one of your competitors called your tadpole in a press conference yes good yeah kelly yes that's right that was nice of it wasn't it but i mean did that spur you on i mean how did that make you feel then yeah, I think it, my size is definitely something that has been challenging for me. And like you say, through my school years, I was always, you know, one of the smallest girls in the class. I was quite a tiny frame, just really skinny and just a small stature. And I think that being able to find my route and avenue into sport gave me more confidence in who I was, like my physical appearance and yeah, it just gave me that kind of elevation that I needed at the time. And then moving into sport and then progressing and getting to the different kind of stages and levels that I then moved on to, I then faced it again. You know, I wasn't the typical height for a heptathlete. I didn't look necessarily like most of the other heptathletes who were very tall. Yeah, very kind of like Amazonian, like looking girls and women. And I didn't really fit into that mold. But I think more than anything, it gave me that extra drive and that motivation to want to say well actually I might be smaller but I'm gonna be you know I'm gonna be the best I'm gonna be better than all of you and that really helped me push on and drive and want to prove to everyone else around me that I could be one of the best in the world. Jess I had a chat with your coach Tony Minicello last week it's quite a long chat and I asked him what he felt made you so special and he said that you really lit up in the big competitions. I've also heard you say that your biggest challenge as an athlete was your self-doubt. So how how did you live with those two things, you know, this ability to light up with that massive self-doubt? Yeah, I think, I think every athlete goes through those moments, and whether that's in training or in competition or the lead up to a major championship where you know that you you know what you want to achieve and you know how your training's gone and and what talent and ability you have but you still have those niggling thoughts in your head of you know what if i can't and what if i i don't achieve what i wanted to achieve on that day and i think it's it comes through years of i suppose experience and going through different championships in different ways that you start to learn to kind of silence those thoughts and you know that they're going to pop up every now and again because that's completely natural but it's making sure that you don't listen to them too closely yeah I definitely felt I think without a doubt that I thrived in those moments where the stadium was full and there was that amazing atmosphere and I also probably found it harder to compete in those environments where was kind of a South Yorkshire Championships or a, a lower kind of level of competition where there was maybe like two people in the stadium. I'd find it hard to kind of get my motivation because I, I love that massive crowd and that energy that you could really feed off. It's funny funny you mentioned that because he, he says that the moment he recognised that you were a real world stage athlete was the moment that you competed in Barnsley. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had so many competitions in Barnsley and that stadium, Cuddeth Stadium, was a big part of like my development as an athlete and um, yeah, how I kind of progressed. And I even in those years where I was doing world championships and traveling around the world, I would still do those like local competitions as well. 
which I think gave me such a good kind of like grounding as an athlete. And it was, yeah, as you can imagine, they're very, very different environments. <laughs> but I think you get something from all of those kind of experiences. There's a line in your book, I think, that Shell had made a point to you about there's an experiment with cockroaches. Apparently, if you put oh, cockroaches yeah. and put other cockroaches around them, the cockroaches run faster for the other cockroaches watching them, which I thought was brilliant, if it's true. <laughs> but it seems to sum up what you said. <laughs> yeah, no, he loves him all that man. Yeah, he's always, that was one of his favourites. But I, I do, I, I think that's true. I think some athletes do struggle under certain situations where there's peers watching them or other coaches or a big crowd. But actually, for me... If I trained and I'd worked as hard as I could in those moments where the tension was on me and my performance, I, I did. I enjoyed it. I thrived on it because I wanted to perform and I wanted to show as many people that I can run fast over the hurdles. I can jump this height if I want to and I've put all the hard work in. So this is almost the enjoyable moment where you just perform. And that's what I loved. You mentioned, Jess, about not listening so much to that the little voice of doubt in your mind. And Tony suggested that I look at the 200 meter race and the 110 meter hurdle that you did in 2012. And you've spoke about this huge expectation. And when your name was announced at London, it was like the place just erupted, it went mad. And yet I can see in your face, it seems like you've gone to a different place. So can you speak a little bit about where your mind went to in that moment and also how you quieten that little voice? Yeah, I think I think in that moment I, you know, I really clearly remember standing on the line, you know, walking out to my blocks, doing a few trial practices over the first two hurdles. I remember feeling really nervous energy. I was like super anxious as to, you know, what was about to happen. This was the start of my my Olympic dream as it was. But I remember just feeling really ready. I'd, I'd trained so hard <laughs> for the past few years and I'd managed to avoid injury. I wasn't ill on the day, you know, all these things that can happen. The sun was shining, the track looked incredible and the crowd was just, you know, it was a full stadium for nine, half past nine in the morning. Everyone's in their seats and there was everyone waving their flags and chanting my name. And yeah, I suppose in that moment, I just had to, kind of in a way like use the crowd but shut them out and not kind of focus on the fact that everybody was watching me and everybody at home and around the country was also watching and just focus on well what are the two things that I need to really hone into on this race and it was get out of the blocks as fast as you can just react to the gun and then my lead leg I needed to just snap my lead leg down as fast as I could and just have that speed in between every hurdle and I just focus on those two or three things and the race almost felt like a complete blur like I couldn't like the hurdles were coming up so fast on me and then before I knew it the race was over and I was looking at the clock and it was this incredible <laughs> time and I was like what what's happened is this actually you know has this actually happened but yeah it was the most amazing way to start a heptathlon but also you know my Olympic heptathlon. And that success in the first event, did it make you feel confident for the way the rest of it would play out? Did it really spur you on? Yeah, I think definitely within combined events. I think if you've got a strong first event, which the hurdles has always been a strong event for me, I think that's a really great way to start the heptathlon because it just it just kind of gets rid of all those nerves. It lifts you up. It makes you feel 
all right, okay, I'm ready to do this now. And I've started off with a good point score. So I definitely use that energy going into the high jump and then into the shot put and the 200 that day and just try to almost just take each event at a time and not get too excited or carried away. You know, in that that moment of finishing the hurdles, I was absolutely elated and so happy. But then when I went off the track and back to the team and the warm-up track, I then had to almost just forget that performance, put it to one side, and then you're almost like starting again because you can't get too carried away in the moment. I need to mention Derry, Jess. So Derry is the is the reason that we're, that you're here. You've agreed to come on. And he's almost as famous as you in the world of athletics. But he proudly messaged me this morning and said that your hurdles time in 2012 would have won the individual event in 2008. And that's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, that shocked me as well at the time. I, you know, I couldn't believe. I mean, hurdles has always been a strong event for me and I love it. But I... Yeah, I was even shocked myself that the time that I ran in that environment in that moment. But Derry was a huge, huge part of my success as well. He He's treated me for years and years and years, and he's always been part of that kind of inner circle, that team that we had traveling to championships. And he'd be the one that I'd come off the track and give me a hug or just make sure everything was okay and you know make sure that I first and foremost was injury free he's always making sure that I was my body was in the best position to go and tackle those two days of really tough competition you dedicated your book to team Ennis I think that was in the forward and this is something we talk to a lot of our guests about is how important those people around you are and some of our guests say they have a really really small team of small tribe like i think somebody said they just want enough to carry the coffin i think it was phil neville because yeah. sir alex ferguson <laughs> lives by that you seem to have a lot of people your family your husband you know your mum and dad but all those sports professionals as well so how important was that for you on on your journey hugely important i think although it's an individual event athletics and track and field you you can't do it by yourself you have to have those really passionate amazing individuals that are first and foremost gonna make those huge sacrifices for you to go out and be the best you can be you know they're not on the track performing in front of the crowds they do all the hard work behind the scenes don't take the glory but they're there you know constantly you know working making sure that you're able to be the best you can be and without those individuals that I had around me it was quite a small team of people again but they were incredible. You know, my physio, Ali Rose and Derry Suter, my coach and, and my family, you know, they were all there just making sure that I I was in the best position I could be in. And yeah, it made those moments so much sweeter being able to celebrate those highs with them as well. You speak, Jess, in your book about the relationship with your coach. And he said to me that he first met you when you were nine. And obviously you worked together for a long time. And I asked him about how coachable you were what do you think he said? <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> probably um, in my early days, he probably said I was a bit of a pain. I think when I started athletics, I it's my first real taste of sport and I didn't really know where it would take me and, and what it took to become a champion. I was just doing athletics and enjoying it. I think he described me at one stage as the reluctant athlete because, you know, as a teenager, life's happening around you and 
and then you have to go and train and compete at weekends and I did find that took quite difficult at some stages but I think he would definitely say in the latter years I was yeah 100% committed and and definitely very easy to coach in those years definitely what did he say (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to betray his trust no so what he said was um yeah he kind of touched on what you said but he said there was a I think when you were I think he said 15 you went to an international tournament and he felt that you got a real uh, you really loved that and thought right this could help me and you felt inspired by that so that kind of shifted your mentality but what what he also said was as you got older then obviously like when you're nine you've not got an idea but as you got older you developed your own ideas about how you wanted to train and how and how you wanted to be coached and that changed the dynamic yeah def- I definitely agree with that I think I did have my first Great Britain International around about the age of 15 and before that point it's hard for young kids to understand why you train and you know what is it all for and as soon as you have that taste of competition and also representing your country it all becomes very clear you know I'm training I'm putting all this energy and effort in because I get to experience this and have this amazing feeling of competing on a global stage and that definitely did change my perspective of what athletics could offer me in the future and then yeah absolutely over the years our relationship changed because it became very much you know I I understood the event a lot better I understood what I needed to do to get stronger I understood my program and I had an opinion on how I wanted to train you know if if Tony would have said right we're doing six 200s today probably wouldn't have done them at nine but as a younger athlete I would have said yep fine I'll do it but as an older athlete you say well okay well why am I doing these 200 meters and how is it going to benefit this part of the heptathlon is it going to affect my throws and you just you're more educated you want to understand how it's going to work and come together and I think that's really important for athletes to be able to to have a voice and perspective and an opinion in the way they're training structured. That's interesting I think um, the relationship with Tony is that you clashed but it was very successful and I think even you did even use the word dysfunctional at one point so I think we often see successful people try and surround themselves with people who are like them, with the same personality types. You kind of are naturally gravitate towards people who are like you. But that there's bravery, isn't there, in choosing to work so closely with somebody that you do clash with or that you don't agree with all the time because you know innately that person's going to help you achieve what you need to achieve. So what was that dynamic like for you? Were there points where you just thought, no, this is it, I can't do this anymore? Or how did that play out? I think with an athlete and coach relationship is, you know, you're in a very heightened, stressful environment for a lot of the time where there's so much on the line and there's massive highs, but there's massive lows as well. And I think, yeah, you have to find a way to be able to communicate and understand how you navigate your yourselves through those situations. But we absolutely were completely different personality types and had a different way of approaching many things. And I think, you know, if you look in lots of different sports, I think that often is the case. You know, there's that coach that's got a very different personality to the team or individual athletes, but it works in a way. So, yeah, we, we've had many kind of <laughs> battles over the years and um, disagreements and 
yeah, very stressful, heightened situations. But from a performance perspective, he was able to get an amazing performance out of me for so many years. When I called him, Jess, I thought it'd be like a five minute chat and it was probably about nearly an hour. And what came across was how <laughs> incredibly proud that he is of everything that you achieved and the person that you are. Oh, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that feels very nice because he, he obviously was very kind of, you know, business-like and not many compliments during those years <laughs> of training and competing. But yeah, I think we achieved something really special and the Olympics was, yeah, Home Olympics was something that we kind of, as a team, we never imagined that we would kind of hit that massive, massive high. I was thinking about... um 2012 and I remember this myself is that you know you were the poster girl weren't you for the games did you fly over some fields or something and like your face is etched into as a promo for the games I mean not only have you got to all the focus on your training and making sure you win the medals you want to win how much did you feel the whole hopes of Great Britain riding on your shoulders and how did that affect you mentally I was definitely aware because there was like you say you know that big the image of me in the field when we flew into London, when the team flew in to London to go to the to the village, you know, we all saw it. <laughs> like, welcome to our turf or something. And me stood there with a really serious face. And then, you know, all the kind of ad campaigns that I was involved in and posters everywhere and magazine covers that, you know, I was very aware that actually, you know, everybody expected me to win. And when we flew into London, we went into the Athletes' Village. Prince William, Prince Harry and Kate were coming through, just doing a walk through the village. And I remember Prince Harry saying, not a lot of pressure on you there. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. So it was, you know, it was, it was everywhere. And I was aware of it. But then at the same time, I had to keep telling myself that actually, you know, I've done so many heptathlons. I'm competing against the same heptathletes that I've competed against before. Yes, it is a home Olympics and there's a lot of different pressures that come with it, but I'm just doing what I've done so many times successfully and I've trained so hard and I just need to follow that process and just deliver. And my coach would always say, you know, you've got 80,000 people in the stadium that all, they're all your friends, they're all wanting you to do well, they're wishing you to do well, so use that energy. And I think that's what I did and I tried to, I didn't think about the cameras there. I didn't think about people watching it on TV. I didn't think about the gatherings around the country. And I tried not to spot my family too much in the crowd. And I just really just tried to keep that tunnel vision and just focused on do the hurdles, do the high jump, do the shot put. And then at the end of the 800, then I could let everything out and actually breathe. And <laughs> thankfully it was with a gold medal. And what was it like in that moment for you? Oh, I mean, the overriding feeling was relief. I, I definitely felt a huge weight just being lifted off my shoulders. Like I couldn't believe that I'd navigated myself through seven events, not messed up, not done anything that, you know, could have, you know, affected that medal position and yeah, and won. And then the next feeling was just that excitement, that disbelief, that that feeling of what it had taken to get there and then I saw all my family in the crowd and just very, very surreal.
Danny's dad, Willie, talks about not claiming the highs and not claiming the lows. And you kind of alluded to that as what you've been saying, because that's what keeps you on track. Obviously, in 2012, you didn't claim that incredible win. You kind of cracked onto the next thing that was in front of you. How important do you think that is for a sustainable career to keep yourself focused and not get distracted by that, you know, immediate success or indeed a failure that you, you know, at a certain event? Yeah, I think it's um, it's a it's a very difficult thing to do as an athlete because you you know you do want to celebrate the highs and you do get caught up in the lows and to maintain that kind of level focus can often be quite challenging. But I I think ultimately that is the secret to success in a way. As soon as I finished the heptathlon or any heptathlon at a championships, I'd always be absolutely elated, smiling, happy, just relieved and proud of that achievement but then you have to shift your mindset very quickly after because you don't want to stay static you have to keep moving forwards and you have to then focus on well what's the next championship what's the next goal and although it is pretty relentless and that's quite a tough way to live it is a relatively like short period of time within your life because you're a sports woman or sports man for you know a short period in your in your lifetime yeah, I was definitely that kind of, I suppose, contained personality where I wouldn't get super excited and I wouldn't get super down. I'd be this kind of mid-road, just steady, not having too many roller coaster emotions and just trying to deliver at each one of those points along the road. A lot of people we've spoken to, Jess, and a lot of footballers I've worked with actually have had challenging relationships with like the male athletes with their fathers most often and I've heard that your mum's really competitive so how, how did that influence you? Yeah she's super competitive my mum and I've only really noticed it in kind of like my older years that she's very much like me like everything is oh you know I've I don't know, just silly little kind of competitive things around the house. She's just got to be the best, but then I've got to be the best. So then we're sometimes a bit like this. But I, I think I definitely get that kind of competitive spirit from my mum. And then my dad is very like super laid back and he's just like an amazing supporting force around me, but just in a really relaxed way. So he, you know, if I said to him now, what's my personal best in the high jump or what was my best time in the hurdles? He probably couldn't tell you. He'd have no idea, but he is just like constantly beaming with pride and so supportive in so many ways. And I think that combination of both my parents being like that has obviously it's worked really well for me and my kind of involvement within the sport. Growing up, did you have the vision that you were going to be a, a world champion, Olympic champion? Yeah, I, I think I did. I think as soon as I started athletics, I... It started off at a lower point, so I, I focused on the English schools. I wanted to, you know, win a medal at the English schools, and then I wanted to, you know, like, make the Yorkshire Championships. It was always, like, a progressive thing, but my dad always says that I would always say to him, I just want to get on the top of the podium. I just want to get on the top of the podium. And as a young child, I didn't win a lot at the beginning. You know, it was a very steady kind of progressive increase to kind of making those major kind of competitions and picking up medals but I think I always knew that I wanted to fulfill my potential and be the best that I could be and as soon as I was aware of the Olympics and the world championships and that kind of scale of competition 
yeah, I just wanted to make a championships. I wanted to be involved. I wanted to kind of, yeah, have the opportunity to see what I could do in those big competitions. So as soon as you felt that vision, was that the thing that kept you going? There's so, so much graft. There's so many kind of twists and turns in that journey. Was that competitive edge that you had, was that the thing that just kept you thinking, no, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to try again. I'll try a different way. Yeah, I think I was, and I still am, I'm that kind of person that if I am um, like focused on something and commit to something, then I'm doing it and I'm I'm doing it until I get it right and that until I kind of get success from what I wanted to do. So, yeah, I mean, there's no athlete or sports person that will sit on here and say, yes, you know, I won this competition, then I won that. And it was just this constant increase to the top. It never ever pans out like that and you are faced with injuries and setbacks and different life things get in the way and you go forwards a little bit then you come back a little bit and then it's this kind of stop starty approach but I think having that journey and that progression to the top makes those moments when you do win an Olympic gold medal or whatever it might be so much sweeter because it's been a challenge and you've overcome so much and you've learned so much so I think for me, yeah, those challenges and setbacks are something that we all experience as sports people, but that really make us like the athletes that we become. I mean, the one that you had, obviously, in, so 2008, we had a, a major injury, didn't you? And you had to, well, ahead of 2008, you had to sack out Beijing. So, yeah. you know, you were all set. You were being heralded as somebody who's going to come away with medals. So how was that for you at the time as, you know, a young person then? Devastated. It was the first real experience of a major setback and injury that I'd had. And up until that point, I almost felt a bit kind of like naive and invincible. I just thought, you know, I'm a young athlete. I won't get injured. I'll just keep progressing and winning and improving my personal best year on year. And actually in that moment, you know, I just had to stop still for for the next few months because my injury was so bad that you know I had to just go straight in a boot straight onto crutches had to rest had to miss the whole season miss an Olympics and then you've got to start bringing yourself back up again and thinking oh you know it's only four more years <laughs> to an Olympics and trying to find that motivation to keep pushing on and, and almost focusing on those short-term goals so we focus on the World Championships the next year and then the competition the year after that. And then obviously it, we found out we were going to have a home Olympics. So that was something that just was like a massive blessing for me to be able to really focus down again and make sure that I didn't firstly experience any injuries like that again. I, I had to adapt the way I trained and what I did. And I think almost in a way that experience and that injury that I went through put me in a really strong position going into 2012 and allowed me to, yeah, just to become a more robust athlete. I think you were told that you were, you may never compete again, weren't you, at 22 though, was that? Yeah, you... it, well, one of the stress fractures was in my navicular bone and apparently that's really bad for blood supply and... And obviously, you know, the majority of my event is explosive jumping off one leg and that kind of speed element. And it was my, you know, my dominant leg. And yeah, there was that worry that actually if this doesn't heal properly, then you're going to have problems with this more long term and perhaps won't be able to jump the heights that you need to jump within the heptathlon and may not be able to put a heptathlon together again. And obviously for me at the time, been so young that was just absolutely 
devastating. I couldn't imagine not being able to progress because I, I hadn't felt that I'd achieved my potential at all at that stage. And so I had to refocus, get the team around me and just try and get everything right as quickly as we could. How did that, you've gone from feeling invincible, which a lot of young athletes do, and then you have this catastrophic event. How did that change your identity and what, and what did you do with that? Uh, I think it made me, it, it helped me gain perspective. Like I think up until that point, I was just kind of coasting through, doing reasonably well, improving year on year. And it made me actually realize firstly what I'd achieved until that point. So it made me really proud of what I'd done up to that point. But then it made me realize, actually, there's so much more that I want to achieve. And I'm in a really fortunate position to be able to be a young woman who can train every day and have my hobby as my career. It really made me just appreciate that position that I was in and gave me great perspective. Tony mentioned that that, uh, the injury was on the back of the first year when you'd gone full time and he said as a coach you just kind of threw the kitchen sink at it and obviously you did too much and that was the cause of the injury. Yeah, I'd um, I'd just graduated from Sheffield University and did my psychology degree and I was then just, you know, we were like, well, this this is it now. We just focus on training. We upped some certain elements. I did a lot of training on the indoor track, which was obviously quite a, a steep bend so you're putting pressure on joints in different ways and yeah I just I just trained too much even if you change two or three things it's just too much too much of an increase at that stage you have to be very slowly in the way you progress your training and it just wasn't the right training that I needed at that time as I was sort of growing and developing as an athlete but Again, I wouldn't change that experience because it gave me so much and I came out the other side. But it's a challenge that most coaches and athletes find. Like, how do you create that balance of wanting to push and get better, but with, you know, avoiding horrible injuries and setbacks as well? Were there any conversations at all when you were that young athlete and you were kind of going through that intensive training with that vision and that and that ambition that a major incident, a major injury could put you out of the thing that you loved most and that your whole life was focused on was there anything with any time that you actually kind of weighed at what that could look like uh i i don't think i allowed myself to really think about what would happen and i am like that now i think you have to really focus on the positives and what you want to achieve from something and not focus on the negatives and what if for example if i'm going to a hurdle race i would never think gosh, what if I fall over all these hurdles and what if I do this and what if that happens? Because I think that can massively have an impact on your physical performance. So in that moment of that injury, I I did have that worry of, is this going to be the end? But I still didn't allow myself to think, well, if it is the end, what am I going to do? And what what am I, am I going to go back to university? Am I, what job am I going to do? Like, what what is it going to look like for me? Because I didn't want to... I didn't want that to be the end of my my sporting journey. So I just focused all my energy on all my rehab, on getting my, my injury back to where it needed to be and then started on building back my strength and my heptathlon to get back for the following year. And that's where all my focus went. This podcast is all about rewiring your brain. So I've read in your book that you had to learn to take off on the other foot, the foot that you... The opposite foot is the one that you yeah. trained... So when you were first told that that might be a 
a way forward? How did you feel? Well, I thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I jump off my other leg because, you know, you're so dominant on one side. And I, you know, my whole life I jumped off my right leg. And it's not just the kind of strength that you have in that, that leg and that side. It's the whole like coordination of your arms and how do you, you know, how do your arms move through the air? And when you're taking off a long jump, how do you land? And it's, you, yeah, you have to train like a different side of your brain, which is really, really challenging. And I thought it would be almost impossible to, to achieve that and get back to jumping the distances that I needed to jump to be competitive on, you know, on a global scale. Uh, but actually, you know, after time and a lot of frustration, I was able to to kind of pretty much master that side. So it's it is amazing what you can you can teach yourself, even at a later stage, to perform on, on the other side of your body. And it was always challenging, but I was able to I think I can't remember what I jumped exactly, but I jumped pretty close to where I jumped off off my right side in the long jump. That's amazing. I heard you say, Jess, that you don't miss competing now. And a lot of athletes that, that I've come across, when they finish, there's like a big hole in their life. And obviously there's a shift in identity again. How's, yeah. how's that transition been for you? Yeah, I, in all honesty, I, I'll say that transition has been really good for me. I, I feel very lucky because I was able to say that I wanted to retire on my own terms. There was no injury or anything that happened where I felt I had to retire and move away from the sport. I actually wanted to get to one more Olympics, do one more cycle. I wanted to win a medal, which I did in a silver medal in Rio. And then I was ready to say, well, actually, you know, I've achieved all that I want to achieve from sport. My motivation is starting to waver. And the last two years within athletics for me were the two most challenging but most rewarding years because I had my son in 2014 and then I came back to do the world championships the following year and another Olympics and it was incredible because he was you know my son was a part of that whole journey but then at the same time it was the most challenging thing I've done because I was starting from scratch really my body had changed so much I changed you know as now a mum and my perspective and everything was completely different and I just set myself this target of two more years it's, it's relatively short term see what you can do and then walk away from the sport hopefully happy with no regrets and and that's what I did and it just felt like the right time for me and, and that transition into retirement was pretty smooth so I, feel, I I do feel really fortunate to have had that journey into retirement and what what about your identity who who are you now uh good question it's always a hard one actually when you have to fill out forms and <laughs> you put occupation I always like stumble and I'm like oh gosh what, what do I do what, what am I now so you always just put professional athlete um and I think yeah for me now like you know my number one thing is I'm a mum like I love being a mum and I've got two young kids and they're amazing and they kind of motivate me and inspire me in lots of different ways and then I think you know I'm still very much involved in sport like I love being on the other side of sport now and and watching from the outside in and having all those feelings and remembering how I felt as an athlete but being able to see it from a different angle which is less stressful and actually really nice the thing that I love doing now is I, I constantly want to inspire more more people and more women in particular to 
understand their bodies and exercise and the power that sport can bring to them. So I think my my identity has changed. I, I probably always say I'm always an athlete, <laughs> like that hashtag, always an athlete. <laughs> um, but yeah, my my identity has changed slightly. But I think that's a you know that's a natural progression when you you move away and from your sport and then into retirement. And what about some of those disciplines or those values that you you needed as a successful athlete? How do you kind of transition those into the life that you've got now after your professional career? I think I still have the same values as I did as an athlete. They're ingrained in you, I think, when you've lived your life in that way for so long and you've been focused and disciplined and structured and you see the value of a team and all these different things you learn in sport. I've been able to then try and impart some of them on like our family life so I'm always you know exercising around the kids and trying to get them into sport and teaching them the value of being focused and really passionate about what you want to do and I think that's something that's come from sport and I definitely take all those kind of values and and learnings into the world of business now I've set up a platform a fitness platform Genis which is all about helping women to yeah, understand their physiology, understand their hormones, how they can train more efficiently and effectively. Um, and I think all those things that I learned within sport and the people that I've been connected with, you know, great physios and great physiologists and great minds within sport have been able to help create this new area of business, which has been really exciting as well. So yeah, I've, I've learned a lot through sport that I've been able to carry on into lots of different areas of my life moving forwards. I think the work that you're doing there is is so important because, as Danny didn't know, I was an athlete, but I was also <laughs> played basketball, netball, hockey, everything. But when you then, you know, you leave, say, university, and then you go on to have children, it's very difficult, I think, less so now, but it's still more difficult for women than it is for men, I think, to find either the time or groups of women to kind of exercise with or to find what really works for you. So... I know things have improved, but yeah, I mean, what kind of response have you had from that that female community, from the advice that you're giving them? Yeah, it's, it's been brilliant. We've had so many different bits of feedback and we've really tried to use the feedback from the women who use the platform to keep evolving the product and making it what they want from it and what they want to see. And I think one thing we, we often hear is that, you know, so many women, you you know, we go through these major life stages, whether that's you know, pregnancy, postnatal, perimenopause, menopause. And, you know, our bodies change and our minds change and how we exercise also needs to change and the way we fuel our bodies. And I think it's more just that education piece around, well, what are these changes and how can I listen to my body to to get the best out of it without feeling that I have to kind of pigeonhole myself into exercising like someone does on Instagram or, you know, all these kind of different workouts that are out there. I think the thing that we try and help and get across to as many women as possible is actually let's look inwards and understand our bodies as individuals to be able to be the best versions of ourselves. And that's something really powerful that you can have and take through lots of different life stages that we all go through as women. And I think that really impacts on mental health, doesn't it, as well? I mean, you need different things to serve you at different times in your life. And I think that ties into a lot of the themes that we discuss in Lobster Brain, that it's easy to say criticize yourself because you can't achieve something whether that's in sport or in, in anything the way you could do say 10 years ago doesn't mean to say that you're no good anymore it just means you need to adapt yeah. your approach to life or exercise or nutrition 
Yeah, and that's the thing. I think a lot of women often feel that, you know, the way they exercised in their 20s or 30s is the way they should always exercise because that's how they got results. But, you know, our bodies change and we change and lifestyle circumstances and everything that happens around us has a massive impact on on that as well. And actually, like you say, we have to adapt the way we move our bodies and listen to our bodies. And I think if we do that, then you get so much more out of yourself. Lisa mentioned mental health and you mentioned Jess now being the other side of athletics it's less stressful and you know we we see athletes performing and it looks like it's this ideal happy easy life how was the stress for you and what did that feel like yeah I I think that you do as the spectators you look from the outside to the inwards to athletes and how they perform you see these great performances you know one-off performances on on a global stage and you think wow like what a great life and those moments must be incredible and they are but actually what it takes to get to that point is very stressful and there's you know you're doing it in the public eye like everybody as soon as you win a medal everybody expects you to keep winning medals and gold medals at that like a silver medal is a disappointment and then you have the pressure that you put on yourself and you don't want to let people down and there's this kind of ever evolving like weight of pressure and expectation even when you've performed well you can't really rest and just be happy and content like oh I've just won a championship that's great that's it you then have to go on to the next and then people expect a little bit more from you and it's a very pressured environment it's a very unique and privileged environment to be in as well like a great opportunity but it is it is very stressful and I think over the past few years I think we've become very aware of the stress and pressures that are put on athletes and there's definitely more being put in place to help more athletes with their mental health and how they approach competitions and how they handle training because it is really really challenging the part of you, Jess, that lights up in those big tournaments. What's happened to that part now? Well, I think it's still there. Like I still, I mean, I, I love watching athletics now and I get to be part of the, you know, the commentary team with the BBC and I still get so excited. I still feel the nerves and the adrenaline when I'm watching, you know, the British girls compete and, you know, the rest of the girls around the world. And I, I love that kind of adrenaline of watching them because I know what it feels like. Um, but yeah, life for me is is different now. I'm I kind of I get excited by what the kids are doing and you know the the progression that they're making through life and and what they're yeah they're doing and that's something that just yeah it brings that enjoyment to me in a different way now. And would would you like them to be athletes? Um, I don't. They don't do athletics, um, and I think that's just because I've not gone out of my way to push them into track and field because I don't want them to have any kind of pressure mm. and as soon as you know anyone sees their name on a track they're just gonna oh well you'll be great <laughs> you know you'll you'll win everything and I think that's a lot to put on you know young kids and I don't want them to ever feel that uh, but they are both sporty which makes me happy <laughs> <laughs> whether they get to like elite level or not I'm just really happy that they enjoy sport and they they're exercising and they're building confidence through doing sport and they're making different friends and all the kind of benefits you get from doing sport at that age is just really important so yeah hopefully they'll stick with some level of sport as they grow older you said in the um the book as well which struck with me i struck a, a point with me you said i believe we all have a journey 
and that I was once a small girl from Sheffield dealing with bullies. So you've come a hell of a long way from, from that moment. So what advice would you give to our listeners who may feel that they want to go on a journey, but perhaps don't have the courage that they think they need to get there? I would say if you, if there's something that you really want to do and that you are passionate about, I think you just have to, you just have to go for it with everything you've got. I think the power of like positive thinking and believing in yourself and what you can go out and achieve, whether that's in a sport or a different area, is so powerful. And I think I've proven that I was literally like the smallest, skinniest little girl at school facing bullies and just not feeling very confident in myself. I found something that I really enjoyed and that I was passionate about, which was athletics. And then I worked hard, you know, I just kept working hard and moving forwards and trying to believe that I could get to the top of what I wanted to achieve within sport. And, you know, amazing things happen. Like you don't have to be this certain type of person to be successful in whatever area. You can just believe in yourself, be passionate and work hard. And I think you can achieve some amazing things if you put them all together. I love that. That's great advice for our listeners. Yeah. Thank you so much. Have you got any advice for Lisa, Jess, in terms of her sprinting and hurdling? <laughs> I think that ship sailed a bit now, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could hurdle now, to be honest. It's quite it's quite a tough event. There's a, there's a car park near us and I could actually get my leg over really high when I don't have to go around the long way to the gate. So I've still got that in me. <laughs> it's given you something. <laughs> Jess, I, um, it's been a huge honor and privilege. Thanks so much for doing this. And I, I feel like, you know, you're a huge inspiration for all of those kids out there who feel like they're too small or too anything not to do whatever is in their heart. And I hope that they hear this and I'm sure you'll continue to be an inspiration in many years to come. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me on and letting me, um, yeah, recollect all those amazing <laughs> memories. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Jess. Danny, that was such an amazing conversation and I got so much out of that. I've been wanting to talk to her for such a long time. Yeah, I love her energy. And one of the main things that stuck out for me, Lisa, was when she was speaking about, I asked her what, what was in her mind in that moment at the first, uh, at the start of the Olympics. And she said that she kind of took in the crowd and used that, but her focus was on the first step and then the second step and the third step. So somehow she managed to use that and get into the flow state and focus her mind so clearly, which is a skill that all of the top athletes have. Yeah, and what's uh, quite amazing with Jess is the fact that most athletes have an event or they might have another event, but they don't have to have that. You know, she's got seven events to get through. Um and it was interesting that in the Olympics, she absolutely had an amazing um, hurdles event, but then celebrated that, but then immediately had to kind of write, okay, what, what forgot to do now? So it's, it's, you know, it's like a gargantuan task ahead of you in a way that isn't it, you know, if you're doing the hundred meter hurdles, you win it, that's done. You've got your medal. Uh, what did you learn Lisa from Jess in terms of your own athletic career? <laughs> I wasn't fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty fast. Um, well, it was a hell of a long time ago, as you can imagine, but she talks about the smell of the track and she, and I've heard her talk about that on podcast. I remember that. I mean, I ran for Salford from being 14 and then I, I went, I ran at university and stuff, but I remember walking on to that track 
and the excitement of being there and the privilege as well that she talks about of doing something you love so much and you've got people around you and great coaches. And I always remember she also talks about just getting out the blocks as fast as she can. And I remember when I was doing like the hurdles or 100 metres, the adrenaline was going through my body so much that my, I felt like my pupils were bouncing at the end of at the finish line. The, like I could literally see my pupils down there. And it was just, yeah. And obviously she's still got that excitement. You, you can feel that she's not lost the experience, the physical feeling as, of how it was when she was competing. Yeah. And I think for her, Lisa, the, you know, the fact that she came through the bullying and throughout her career, she was seen as too small and too skinny and not the right kind of athlete. It's that inner determination that grew because mm. of the adversity that that set her apart. And if you, her coach asked, told me to watch the 200 meters in that 2012, and she was way behind uh, Daphne Schiffers, and she caught her up just through sheer determination, and there was no way she was going to lose that race. And I think that quality is something that was that was, as I said, it was built through adversity, and it was what made her the champion that she was. She was very grateful for the people, her tribe around, who basically gave their everything behind the scenes to get her on the podium. So they didn't get any of the glory. She got all that glory and they were happy to be part of that team to get her there, which I thought was nice. Yeah, and I think uh, her parents had a big impact on her as well, Lisa. It's clear from the conversation that she's very level-headed and she doesn't get carried away with the highs and the lows. And she's got that inner grit and determination it seems like from her mum who's super competitive and at the same time her dad is really laid back so she's kind of got the best of both worlds and, and is able to manage those highs and lows yeah like she said her dad wouldn't have a clue what her best time was or what she'd won where <laughs> but he just loved her and was always beaming so that's probably has a huge impact on keeping it real I suppose yeah, and the, the other really interesting thing in, about Jess that you picked up on, Lisa, was the uh, neuroplasticity element. You know, because of her navicular foot injury, she had to change the foot that she led with, and it's completely rewiring the, the whole brain and the whole body. And she managed to do that and get it to the same level as the other foot and become an Olympic champion with her less dominant foot. And it's not just a foot, was it? It's a whole physical structure. I mean, you take off on a different foot and the whole rest of your body needs to react in a different way. So it's rewiring not just a foot, but a whole a brain and a body. Yeah. I'd have told somebody to get lost if they told me how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Lobster Brain. Lobster Brain will be back on the 8th of June with Sadhguru. Sadhguru grew up in a small village in India and he's now transformed into a worldwide visionary and humanitarian who's got over 2 million followers worldwide and over 2 billion people have gone through his yoga and meditation programs. I think for our listeners, it will make our listeners question a huge amount of their, their lives at the moment in a good way. But for me, I even found that things that and thought processes that are ingrained in me now that I felt were really good and insightful and self-aware, he's taken me into a completely different dimension on those even. So that's what I'm trying to process at the moment. So it's absolutely fascinating. It will just literally make you rethink your life and that's a really great thing. Yeah, and I've been fortunate, Lisa, to have met many, many people across the world and I've never met anyone like this guy before. In the meantime, we'd love it if you could follow this podcast. 
That way, more people will get to hear about Lobster Brain and the next episode will drop into your feed as soon as it's ready. Thank you.